public online and can I welcome all the members who are participating by video conferencing and remind members about the protocols regarding the use of electronic devices and uh, the first item I will go to then would first of all go to apologies and then go to the clerk but have there been any apologies received clerk? Um, just chair that um, Gordon and Jonathan will be a bit late to the meeting. Okay, thank you. And we have all other members online, so there's no other apologies. Thank you. So I'd just like to then, Clerk, ask you to go to a outline there the committee, the committee decisions in relation to the the uh, health and social care bill, please. Thanks, Jared. So in this is, um, the committee have requested um, the department consider amendments in the following areas. So it's in relation to. Um, the local engagement and input in relation to commissioning um, decisions, um, the transition arrangements um, for that once the, the board and LCGs are um, dissolved, um, the scrutiny that the committee is able to provide during that um, transition period, the governance framework um, of the new structures. Um, the committee would like to see the department consider amendments in that area. Um, and then there's a couple of areas the committee were wanting further clarification, and that's in relation to the appeals process, and then also in relation to the transition of staff um, across the BSO. So if members are content, those are the areas that will flag to the um, department that the committee are wanting amendments and further information on. Yeah, members content, Carol. Yeah, Church, just uh, I mean, obviously we raised it in close session, but just to try and find out if there, you know, if it's possible to get an update, an urgent update from the Minister on that bonfire outside a, a, a farm station in Ards, if that can be done today, please. Yeah, I think we had agreed that that would be done and see, can we get some information back on that uh, urgently? Um, Paula, your hand is raised there. Is that from the previous session? Yeah, thank Sorry, you. Sorry, previous. Okay, so members agreed as outlined by, by the clerk there um, in relation to HSC belt. Thank you. Okay, members, so in terms of chairman's business, uh, waiting lists, I, I think given the focus that we've had on waiting lists and, and we're very where we have welcomed the elective the elective cure plan that the, the minister has set out. I think it will be really useful at our first meeting back if we could get an update from the department on on the immediate actions that they outlined in that in that plan so we can we can hit the ground running in terms of, of the uh, that that autumn period. So uh, if we could ask the department to come back and brief us at our first meeting in relation to that item, and also if we could look at getting, I think, a quarterly update on the waiting list, maybe a written update monthly, but also make it a standing agenda item so that we can keep a track on progress with the waiting lists and, and play our part in relation to that. Would members be content with that? Thank you. Also, just to note uh, the concern around the recall that was announced on Tuesday in relation to the 9,000 patients in the Northern Trust. And uh, first of all, I'm sure all of our, our thoughts are with every one of the people who have been uh, first and foremost caught up in that recall. Um, it is, it is, I think, and, and you know, obviously this is additional pressure on staff and everything as well, and we're very conscious of how under pressure they are. So I think that's an, an area that we want to just keep an eye on, committee, as, as it goes forward. It is worrying that there's another major large-scale recall taking place, but um, 
I think I think it's it's important that it's robust and thorough, and, and now that it, that it has been found necessary. I would also like to welcome the launch of the mental health strategy. Um, I think that's that's a useful, and, and I, I would I would actually think it's. I, I'd look forward to maybe engaging with the minister around the finance for all of these. There has been a number of significant announcements over the past number of weeks. Those are all going to be clearly reliant on workforce, on finance, on issues like that. So I think it'll be good to to tease some of that out. Um, also, I'd like to welcome the fact that there has been a chair now appointed to the Muckamore Inquiry, a Tom Clark QC. I think that's that's a welcome progress in that. And I know, Carol, you've been working on maybe a meeting, an informal meeting with the families. Yes, Carol? Yes, Chair. So I, I, I raised this um, at the committee last week. So I agreed to pull together um, an informal meeting with the Muckamore families. Um, and I think it will be important, you know, since I get that word back, I'll do that. But Chair, um, we, we, we've now um, got ongoing inquiries and I, I think it would be really appropriate if we could get a, an update before the meeting with the Minister next week on basically where all those inquiries are at, just to kind of get a situation report from where they're at, what stage you're at, what's going to happen, almost like a timeline for them, because why they're welcomed, because it's about opening, openness and transparency. Um, there's a feeling that that's all kind of very process-driven at this stage, and that certainly committed to meetings I've had with different families. So if we could maybe ask, get agreement to ask that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Members content that we seek that update? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, the other thing I did, I did want to mention, members, in relation to, I'm very conscious today um, that today is the, is the, sees the end of the EU settlement scheme. And I have a particular concern around the health element. I did a meeting in my constituency this week with a fantastic group of young people from East Timor, Timor-Leste, who had put together a container of goods for their, their, their own people back at home in East Timor as a result of the damage inflicted by storm Sarodia. However, I would be concerned that any kind of barriers to, and, and, and this is in particular in relation to the announcement of the autumn rollout of a booster vaccine, and I think it's crucial that people are confident and comfortable to come forward to health, to seek the health uh, support that they need in terms of that. And I think it would be maybe just useful if, the, if, if, if we write to the minister flagging the fact that, that I, I, I believe that that should be extended, but I certainly believe even if it's not extended, it needs to be made very clear that communities who may be at risk or feel uneasy about engaging with a with, uh, official dumb in any shape or form, including health, that that would present a risk both to them and to the wider community. So I think it's something to be considered that, that the minister would reflect that in light of that we're dealing with a pandemic, that we need to be hugely sensitive and we need to be putting in place measures that will provide reassurance to all communities. Would members be content with that? Yeah, thank you. And finally, members, just a flag that we do have a joint meeting at 1pm today with the Committee for Justice and we therefore need to stick rigidly to timings today. So I'll go to the draft minister at item four, um, and this is the meeting of the 24th of June, which are at tab 4.1 of your pack. Are members content with the minutes? Yeah. And are there any matters arising? There are no matters arising, no, from those today. Thank you. So we are now moving then to the departmental briefing. I'll just check, Clerk, uh, do we have officials available at this point? Yes, officials are available, Chair. 
Okay, so members, item 6N is a departmental briefing on health-related EU exit issues, including the uh, scheme that was announced, the reimbursement scheme, for to allow people to avail of uh, healthcare in the 26 counties, and the EU medical device regulations. Relevant papers are included at tab 6.1 to tab 6.4 of your pack. So I'd now like to welcome Department of Health officials to our meeting once again, and I think they've all been with us in, on several occasions. But uh, so pleased to welcome Miss Kathy Harrison, who's the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer. Are you able to hear me okay, Kathy? Yes, I am, Chair, yes. Good morning, Kathy. And Miss Emer Smith, who is Senior Principal Officer in the EU Exit Transition Unit. Can you hear me okay, Emer? Yes, thank you, Chair. Thank you. Ms. Patricia Quinn Duffy, who is EU Exit Lead in Reciprocal Healthcare and Workforce Issues. Can you hear me, Patricia? I'm not hearing you there, Patricia. You may be still on mute. So can you hear us? Yeah, that's it now. Okay, oh, thank you, chair. Patricia. Thank you very much. And Mr. David Wilson, and David is Senior Principal Officer uh, for Safety, Quality and Standards. Can you hear us okay, David? Uh, yes, I can, Chair. Okay, well, listen, thank you all very much. You're all very welcome to Fulcher Rovalig, Gucci and Arun Slancha, to, to this morning's Health Committee. And I'll go back to you then, Cathy, just in terms of outlining how you wish to uh, deal with the briefing of committee members, and then we'll go into question and answer session. Chair, thank you very much and uh, also, uh, welcome the opportunity to give an update on EU-related issues uh, as they affect health. Um, today, um, in advance of the meeting, uh, quite a detailed briefing was given to you. It was submitted a couple of weeks ago, so there are some updates today that I'll give uh, verbally as we go through. Um, so, um, what I thought I'd do is I will um, outline some of the medicines issues and then I'll hand over to Patricia and she'll take us through the sort of the people issues and services issues and we'll leave a good bit of time for questions at the end chair but just um, I'll just run through and remind members of the key issues around medicines give an update on the EU negotiations as well and then hand over to Patricia so um, uh, members will be aware that uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol came into effect on the 1st of January this year. And under the Northern Ireland Protocol, Northern Ireland continues to follow EU laws and regulations uh, processes for goods. And that includes those for medicines and medical devices. And uh, the key point here is that the GB is not obliged to do so. So there is a difference. Um, the introduction of the Northern Ireland Protocol has implications for supply and regulation of medicines. And just briefly to outline those, um, Members will be aware as well that historically our model of supply of all of our medical products into Northern Ireland has relied upon free movement of supplies from GB into Northern Ireland and that we use, we regularly use a figure of around 98% of our medicines flowing from GB into Northern Ireland via that route. Um, however, under, under the protocol, medicines moving from GB into Northern Ireland will be handled as goods enter an EU from a third country. And this means that uh, medicines will be subject to additional testing, specifically batch testing and some other verification. In addition, prescription-only medicines that are used in Northern Ireland under the protocol 
um, will have to have packaging that complies with the EU falsified medicines directive and this will not apply in GB. Um, now, at this moment in time, the EU Commission and the UK government have agreed a grace period, which we are currently in, and that runs until the 31st of December. And that was introduced to provide additional time for businesses to prepare for the full implementation of the protocol. However, the full implementation of the protocol as it was written uh, would have a major impact on medicine supplies if left unmitigated and there were no um, improvements made to, the, to the, those arrangements. And industry would have had to made, make significant changes to medicine supply routes in order to handle additional importation arrangements. Now, we are aware that the pharmaceutical industry have begun to consider the changes that they may need to make to their supply chains and that they have been awaiting further information from the Department of Health and Social Care in relation to the arrangements by which they'll have to comply when the grace period ends at the end of this year. Now, the industry... Um, I, have, I meet regularly with representatives from industry and have to say that the complexity that this, these arrangements have introduced is really considerable. They are looking at their entire portfolios of medicines that they supply into Northern Ireland. I've met a wide range of companies and they've all told me the same thing, and that is that they're committed to to continuing to supply to Northern Ireland, but they are having to consider their options in relation to um, continuity of supply routes and that they're considering different options such as rerouting um, uh, from via direct from EU or direct into Northern Ireland um, and using the using ROI and also looking at things like joint packaging with ROI and, and issues like that. They're also advising me that there's a risk of discontinuations and that they, there is a risk um, without any mitigations obviously being introduced that they, they could see that not all of their portfolio would transfer over uh, following the end of the grace period. And members, again, I have previously advised that industry, the pharmaceutical industry is legally obliged to give DHSC six months notice of any discontinuations to any part of the UK, and that includes anything to Northern Ireland, and that because of that, you know that at the end of June was a critical point for us in industry. We're stressing to us that they were having to make business decisions and that this is a critical time. I have to advise the committee there have been a, a relatively small number at this stage of uh, notifications of discontinuations of products that have been made into the Department of Health's portal. The information on that is commercial and sensitive and, uh, and uh, numbers are low currently. In addition to some of the supply issues as well, just to remind members, there are also issues relating to the licensing of medicines. and. Um, since the start of January this year, if a medicine is licensed through the centralised authorised procedure, which is handled by the European Medicines Agency, and that covers our innovative medicines like new medicines, like cancer medicines, etc., then uh, MHRA are in a position that they can authorise any variations to those to those um, centrally authorised. Uh, Centrally, central authorizations and licenses, as we would call them. MHRA can authorize those changes in GB, but in Northern Ireland, we have to wait for AMA to make the changes. And 
that that is potentially a, a, an issue for us that we have to consider because if there's any differences between the timelines between MHRA and EMA and their decision making or if there's any differences at all between the conditions on the license for example you know age groups or how the drugs can be used or stored or anything else it can present difficulty and we have a, had a recent issue that members will be aware of with the lung cancer drug Tegreso and this arose because Tegreso was already a centrally authorised product and the new indication for lung cancer that was approved, MHRA were able to make those changes quickly for GB but we had a lag period where we had to wait for EMA. Now, to avoid delay in Northern Ireland, that was all managed and um, patients had access to the drug. That was managed by us working with DHSC and MHRA in relation to that. But that's something we need to be aware of in future for centrally authorised products. And the other area, area relating to licensing relates to affects medicines that are licensed through another process called decentralised or mutual recognition procedures. And there is a difference of opinion in relation to the, func the location of specific functions for testing. And that was um, one of the areas, along with the supplier, some of the supply areas that have been the subject of the current and ongoing um, negotiations with EU. So quite a number of issues really relating to medicines and this is for that reason there has been ongoing discussion with the EU because we wanted to reach some kind of an EU negotiated solution to say look a lot of these issues could not have been predicted um, you know uh, a number of months ago now that we know more and we know some of the, the risks um, and uh, formal negotiations have been going on and the UK government have been working with the EU Commission and a number of proposals have been put forward from the UK and the whole point of it is and the whole aim is that that is to mitigate any risk to the continuity of our supplies into Northern Ireland as a consequence of the protocol and I can advise uh, the committee that yesterday on the 30th of June the EU Commission announced a number of solutions to help the implementation of the protocol. Uh, they are referring to a creative solution to ensure the continued long-term supply of medicines from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. The EU statement advised that the solution will involve the EU changing its own rules so that regulatory compliance functions for medicines authorised by the UK for the Northern Ireland market in accordance with the protocol may be located in Great Britain, subject to specific conditions ensuring that the medicines concerned are not further distributed in the EU internal market. The Commission have also indicated in their statement that they will put forward a legislative proposal in early autumn in order to be able to finish the legislative process on time ahead of the grace period ending. Now, the proposal that has been received from the EU is being given cur currently being given very careful consideration. It's highly complex and covers a number of areas. Um, as a result of this on Unfortunately, today I can't comment on any further details of the proposal other than to say that it's really it's being currently under consideration and we will know more so shortly. And um, whilst I welcome the announcement, it's very positive and obviously a negotiated solution is always what we wanted to see in this space. We do need to see further details and when I have seen those and have been able to brief my minister, I will advise the committee um, chair and come back with more details. So I can't provide a lot more details today. 
Um, I did also want to um, just remind the um, members that as well as the ongoing negotiations um, which, which have, uh, have been with the EU, there's been considerable work as well going on in the background between my team and myself and officials in DHSC and MHRA around other mitigations that might be needed to maintain supplies of medicines because we can't risk any interruption in our medicines medicine supplies, as you know. So that work is still going on. And obviously, whenever the fine detail of the EU negotiation is known, we will know which of those mitigations can be stood down or which may need, still need to be taken forward. Um, moving on from medicines, in terms of medical devices, just since the last update that I gave you, um, a couple of things have happened. So a statutory instru instrument called the Medis Medical Devices Northern Ireland Protocol Regulations 2021 was laid on the 16th of June. Also, the EU uh, Medical Device Regulations came into effect here in Northern Ireland on the 26th of May. And also a uh, brief update on data adequacy and that is to say that on the 28th of June the EU Commission adopted two adequacy decisions for the UK and the EU have indicated that this means personal data can now flow freely from EU to UK um, chair so that that's the end of my update chair if you're content we can hand over to Patricia yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Cathy. And yeah, certainly we'll go across then to yourself, Patricia. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Um, now to update on uh, the uh, people and services elements. Um, in terms of reciprocal healthcare, there hasn't really been any movement um, since the introduction of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement and the Social Security Protocol. However, the Irish and the UK have been in negotiations around the overlap between the MOU between Ireland and UK and uh, the TCA as to which um, would apply. They still haven't um, issued any guidance on it yet, but we're expecting that there will be an exchange of letters um, fairly shortly, which will be publicised. And at that point, I'll share those with the committee so that there's a, an identification of which, um, which protocol applies in which circumstance, um, because some of the uh, Provisions are slightly better in the MOU than they are in the TCA for British and Irish citizens in the two jurisdictions within the CTA. So that should be um, fairly shortly um, provided. The other thing that we've done around reciprocal health care is that guidance has been shared with um, stakeholders within the HSC, um, the patient payment officers, uh, the family practitioner services and the board. Um, and we've had discussions around uh, applications of this the EU withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement. Um, so we've sent that out for some um, feedback because obviously on the ground there's always complications and sort of um, applications that they need to have a little bit more information. So that is a, an ongoing process with the operational colleagues. Um, the major announcement that we've had um, probably this um, 
Let's just bring it up here. Um, this month is around the um, the minister requesting the reinstatement of a temporary scheme similar to the cross border healthcare directive. Um, so this opens today in the board, and they will be accepting applications from today. Uh, and it allows ordinary resident patients in Northern Ireland to seek treatment in the Republic of Ireland and have the costs reimbursed up to the cost of the treatment to the HSC in Northern Ireland. Um, the proposed scheme is an administrative scheme that has been developed under the 1972 order under 16, Section 14A, um, and we are making arrangements with the board to deliver that service and arrangements. Basically, how it will work is very similar to how the cross-border healthcare directive worked. Um, the patient themselves must have um, a diagnostic by a Northern Ireland practitioner and they then decide that they would like to access private treatment in the South. Um, it's up to the patient to source their provider um, and then apply to the board for authorisation. Um, one of the things that we have introduced in this um, scheme to ensure that Patients are accessing healthcare, which is a similar basis to that which would be provided in Northern Ireland, and that they uh, that we are aware of of how many uh, applications and treatments are being uh, put through to, to for budgeting purposes, is that all treatments need to be prior authorised before a patient um, can go into the Republic to have their treatment carried out. And this is actually how the scheme is run in the South. Um, but in the UK, it had been under the directive that emergency and some other treatments would have been available um, without prior authorisation. The patient then would arrange treatment and pay for treatment and then seek reimbursement from the board. There are eligibility criteria to uh, ensure that people that are accessing this are, first of all, ordinarily resident in Northern Ireland, that they have been diagnosed with a clinical need for the treatment. Um, and that the treatment is one that is commissioned by the board and that they're not getting access to care that wouldn't be otherwise provided in Northern Ireland. Um, the treatment will receive um, a repayment, which is up to the value of the treatment in the HSC. This will be discussed with the patient at um, their application time and the HRG costs will be available to patients, although they are very complicated um, and probably uh, the discussion with the board at this point is very important for the patient themselves. Um, the exemptions to the scheme are that anything which is a long-term care, so any social care elements, will not be paid for out of the scheme, which is similar to the cross-border healthcare directive. Um, organs and organ transplants also will not be available, nor public vaccination programmes, and this is exactly the same as the cross-border healthcare directive. Um, for this scheme, as the prior scheme as well, no costs will be reimbursed for travel or accommodation. And it is the responsibility of the patient themselves that they're stepping outside um, the HSC in Northern Ireland and that they should be as assured as they can that the treatment and the practitioners that they're seeing in the Republic 
um, or of quality treatment now. To help with this, we have been in touch with our counterparts in the Republic and we're working together to allow patients to continue to um, access the national contact point, which would have been available under the cross-border healthcare directive, which gives um, a bit more assurance for the treatments in the South. Um, one thing that we would recommend is that any patients using this um, do have a valid um, global health insurance card or European health insurance card um, so that they do not have any difficulties accessing potentially emergency treatment in the public sector um, and also that they have comprehensive medical insurance. This is really because if they're in a private healthcare setting and they need further additional um, treatments which are not part of the authorised treatment, they may have to pay additional costs which might not be recoupable from the board and the medical insurance really should cover that um, element and it's, it's, a, it's more a safety net um, because the EHIC and GHIC will only be able to be used in a public setting. During this period also the Minister has requested that we do a full policy review and consultation on the scheme and how we would look at this scheme um, in the future as the scheme has been capped at 12 months um, to start with. Um, the next uh, sort of urgent um, time that we're in at the moment is around the EU settlement scheme. Um, obviously, the settlement scheme has closed as of yesterday, um, and to ratify their rights under the EU withdrawal agreement, EEA and Swiss citizens should have applied to the scheme um, by yesterday. Um, the UK has not extended, as, as far as I'm aware, uh, to date, the, the scheme to allow um, late applications or an extension to application times. Um, rights under the EU withdrawal agreement include rights to access healthcare and the settled status is an immigration status um, to continue to live and work in the UK. Um, those applying for the scheme will either receive settled status or pre-settled status um, and anyone applying will get a certificate of application once their um, application starts through the process of being considered. Um, the Home Office has made it clear that they will um, accept late applications um, because we're aware that there will be some people who haven't applied um, and the Home Office has made it clear that, that late applications will be accepted under a range of um, conditions, um, which to be honest, I think it's going to be taken on each case um, because it's not very clear on what those um, conditions will be. Um, it's usually, they've said exceptional circumstances, but what those exceptional circumstances, we, we don't actually know what they are. Um, the Home Office, however, has made it clear that there should be no discrimination um, on those that um, have a, a settled status or uh, as it's up to the individual to apply They've advised also that there should be no retrospective checking of settlement status by employers, um, but however, right to, check, right to work checks for new employees will, will include um, slightly more evidence for EU citizens and a settled status would be looked for at that point for working purposes. For 
Um, we have shared uh, the sort of in the run up to the closure and um, the final weeks of the applications um, advice out to our stakeholders to share with their employees um, and uh, to try and get the, the final um, sets of people who haven't applied just yet to, the, to get their applications in by yesterday. Um, we've also shared the um, employer duties with stakeholders across the HSC as well. Now, in terms of access to healthcare, um, obviously healthcare is a residency-based system in Northern Ireland, and the test of, uh, to de determine eligibility is known as ordinary residence. Um, and for those that have been in Northern Ireland, uh, those EU citizens, by before the 31st of December, this would be an EU settlement status. Um, we understand, obviously, that some people may not have applied um, and that the applications will be considered. But those that have already registered with a GP currently have been considered to be ordinary resident. They have had a residency, an ordinary residence check made, and they will not there will be no retrospective uh, checks on GP registrations. However, if a person was to move to a new GP or to apply initially to a GP that they haven't before, they would go through an ordinary residence check. If at that point a person is discovered not to be registered, um, we would uh, encourage them to get EU settlement status and to apply to the settlement scheme and would give them direction as how they can get help to that uh, to do that. Um, however, all emergency treatment is free at the point of delivery in an emergency department and any necessary healthcare will not be denied to anyone. Um, however, some people may be eligible for a charge unless an exemption applies under the provision of health services to persons, not ordinary resident regulations. However, once a person has applied to the EU settlement scheme and has an application accepted and has a certificate of application, um, as far as the Home Office is concerned, that person's rights are maintained until the completion of their application, however long that may take, including um, whether it's reviews of, of what their status has come out as. Um, I've been told that this could take up to a year. Um, so as so long as a person has a certificate of application, they still will be able to access healthcare on the grounds that they have currently. Um, in terms of other areas, uh, MRPQ and the uh, the registration of professionals and um, the registration and dual registration of professionals is ongoing between um, the north and the south um, to ensure that services and professionals can still continue to provide uh, the north-south services um, adequately. Um, we are working with the Department of Health and Social Care in London and BASE on continuing um, arrangements post the standstill um, point, which is two years, where the UK is still offering um, automatic recognition for the automatically recognised professions. Um, so work is probably going to get underway in that in the autumn and into 2022. Um, we are working very closely with Bayes on updates around the common travel area and um, we have regular meetings with them um, around the 
regulation compatibility and the regulators working together uh, as the MOU, overarching MOU on the CTA has directed. Um, there's been very little movement to date on that. There have been lots of discussions and lots of um, uh, sort of research and, and inquiries. And I suspect that the, we will have more to tell the committee come the autumn around the regulators working together within the CTA uh, and on the direction of travel for professional qualifications. In terms of the frameworks, um, for the healthcare, we have three frameworks, blood, tissue and organs, and the health protection. Um, there has been very little movement on those to date um, in terms of, of uh, getting any scrutiny. Um, there are negotiations underway to try and include more uh, in the frameworks around the Northern Ireland Protocol and the internal market within the UK. Uh, and because of that, there hasn't been any further um, scrutiny taken forward. We would hope that over the summer that the um, frameworks do get further uh, updated to include those elements, because obviously they're very important to Northern Ireland that those are there and that the frameworks have those agreements. Um, that we would be able to go to scrutiny in the autumn. Um, obviously, the uh, four jurisdictions will have um, separate scrutiny and that we would want, um, obviously, our scrutiny to, to be able to include details of all the things that will impact on Northern Ireland as we will be um, complying with EU regulations where the rest of the UK won't. Um, in terms of the reciprocal healthcare framework, I know that the committee has asked for feedback on that and for that to be taken forward. I have taken that back to um, the Department for Health and Social Care, but it, currently there has been no further movement on that or a review of that, and there has been minor movement on the agreement of the MOU under the Healthcare EEA and Switzerland's Arrangements Act, which really is the underpinning piece of agreement that would stay in place of a reciprocal healthcare framework. Um, we've had very little movement on that to date, um, but we do have regular updates within the UK and the four jurisdictions and both Scotland, Wales and ourselves are pushing to have some amendments made to that MOU, um, <clears throat> which would uh, basically be in place of the reciprocal healthcare framework. Um, but we have said that we would like a review of that as well. Um, but the Cabinet Office, again, uh, hasn't asked for an update on that. So just to advise the committee that there's been very little movement on that since our last um, update. Um, that really is, is all of the updates that I have on people and services. There's been some movement on some things and and not an not, not awful lot of movement on other things, um, but we sort of expect the second half of the year um, to be to sort of start a pace with other areas, and we'll keep the committee up to date on those. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Patricia. A lot, a lot in that now. A lot of both those presentations. So, listen, I'm going to be as brief as possible because we are uh, very conscious of time today. But thank you for both both the presentations. I'll go back to you first of all, Cathy. Um, 
my first point is arising out of the uh, what you you flagged up in uh, in terms of the the six month notice and the the end of the discontinuations. Can you give us an outline of what the impact of the discontinuations are and whether or not those are being mitigated or you're confident that those can be mitigated? Can you give us some idea of the scale, the type of areas we're talking about and the significance of that medication, please? Okay, so the, the, there's a small number of lines at the moment, Chair. I can't, it is commercial and sensitive, so I can't provide any details on that, but I can advise that um, there will be a process taken forward where each, each one of those medicines will be considered and the implications of their withdrawal from the market in Northern Ireland considered. So, for example, um, and I don't know because this this work is to be is to be undertaken uh, in the, in the coming weeks. But so, for example, you know we could be we could have a situation where where it's a particular it's a particular drug, and there could be a range of other alternatives already on the market. So no further action may be needed. Um, or, or, or we really need to go through it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, Chair, we've not been in this position before, specifically for Northern Ireland. Some drugs are discontinued in the UK, you know, and, and there would be a risk assessment done in terms of the whole population, but we've not been in this position before. So we'll be work going through it on a case-by-case -case basis in the coming weeks. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually very conscious you and I have discussed these issues at length way before Brexit even came around, and 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 looking forward. But this is where this is where the actual the actual rubber meets the road in that sense. And I suppose I want to ask a more general question around, you know, the, the Brexit has led to a lot of these things having to be rearranged, um, new distribution lines, new new uh, channels, all of that, it, the uh, the labelling. The licensing, so many issues with with medicines. I am a, I am conscious, and, and I, I I kind of tentatively welcome some of the some of the very recent uh, kind of indications that there are some areas of movement that could be quite significant. I think, and, and I, I welcome the fact that you flagged some of those today. But in general, in terms of the negotiations that are ongoing and the arrangements that are being made, um, it is it has always been my case that that the we need to address whatever issues there are. We need to address them positively, but that requires goodwill and good faith in negotiations. Would you be of the view that those negotiations are taking place in a climate of goodwill and good faith, and that that uh, would you be confident that that will be maintained in order to ensure that we here and we have a particular vulnerability here in the north that we are that the negotiations being carried out by London are cognizant of the fact that we have a very specific set of requirements here and that we need to ensure medicines and medications. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, that uh, I've heard from, from some English politicians in recent days that the EU take a legally purist approach to this. That sounds to me that the EU insists that laws are, and agreements are upheld. So I, I'm concerned that there would be any sort of poisoning of that negotiation at this point in time is there a positive framework and are issues being worked through effectively in your view um i believe there are chair and um certainly the um the seriousness of the matter of the issues relating to medicines i think is is, is now well understood by all by all parties and there's been there's been a huge effort made i i think from both sides to really understand the issues and um, I have no reason to believe there's anything other than there other other than a positively, uh, you know, positive a tone to those discussions, Chair. 
Okay, thank you. A couple then for yourself, Patricia. Um, first of all, on the the twenty six county uh, the the cross border the cross border reciprocation. I note that you said there that you have to have a diagnosis here um, to to access that scheme. I also note that there are currently one hundred and thirty seven thousand two hundred and thirty five people waiting for a diagnosis, and that's a four point seven percent increase on the same case last year. So that's a significant part of the population who are precluded and, and excluded from this scheme as a result of not having the diagnosis. So is that not a concern in itself? But also, should you not have been looking at actually accessing the potential for access to diagnosis in the South as part of how we address the waiting list here? Is that not a fundamental first building block of, of the, the health treatment? The, the scheme, if you have... Um... If you have something from your GP that says that you need to see um, to get a diagnosis, um, sorry, probably diagnosis wasn't probably the right word to to use there. Diagnostics. But, it was diagnostics. Yeah, diagnostics but we do yeah, have a particular problem yeah, with diagnostics. Yeah. These are the people who. Yeah. yeah. So we do so, have a particular so, problem yeah. with diagnostics. So, so if a person um, does have from their a letter from their GP to say that they consider they need a diagnostic, they can seek treatment, seek that diagnostic under the the, the cross-border healthcare directive. The original way the cross-border healthcare directive worked was that that would have been, uh, wouldn't have needed authorization from the board. Um, so the person needs to have a letter from their GP um, to go to the board to get authorization to seek a diagnostic. So they, they can apply for that. Okay. Sorry, Chair, if I misled the, the committee. Okay, no, that's important clarification, and, yeah. and I do welcome that because because it's it's key that we maximise every avenue we have yeah. to try to deal with the waiting list. Yeah. In in that in that regard, moving moving on, what progress is there? So I'm very conscious that that's only one small element of the wider cross border uh, cross border directive. So, and I have personal experience here as a, as, a, as an MLA of sending people or assisting and supporting people to be able to travel across Europe often for hips and some of the things that are causing so much pain and distress none of that is currently available we're outside of that system is there any progress to report in terms of of uh, anything further to access that wider european healthcare? that will be taken forward in the review of the scheme within the 12 months of this scheme um the difficulties around the cross-border healthcare directive and accessing it is that we do not have the reciprocity with the other nations. So the national contact points in the other nations don't have to provide patients with any information or um, background on the clinicians that they would be attending. Um, so there's more potentially more risk in travelling further afield. Um, because we do have some arrangements with um, the South to be able to access the national contact point uh, <clears throat> and to be able to, you know, it's a, it's kind of we're working together on this. Um, so that will be considered because, yes, you're very right that um, there are very different cost elements around Europe. Um, Lithuania and Latvia and Hungary are very much places where people went uh, to get um, osteo uh, treatments, whether it be hips, knees, uh, shoulders, and they are sometimes more cost effective than um, going to the Republic. Um, but we have to balance at the moment around patient safety and travelling within um, the current 
conditions and all of that will be taken forward in the review that is taking place this year as to whether or not we can extend um, it wider afield to the rest of Europe. Having said that, most patients that use the cross-border directive originally would have gone to the south. Okay, thank you, and uh, we, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. It, 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 my, my question is aimed from the point of view of uh, of availability, mm -hmm. as well as uh, yeah. more so actually than cost. It's about eating into those waiting lists and not allowing the waiting list to grow. So uh, there is cost element very important, but but also accessibility and availability are, are issues there. So we'll keep an eye on that. The final one for me then before I go to members is around the EU settlement scheme. I actually raised this in, 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 in chairperson of business. I did a, an engagement in my constituents this week with a, with a group from East Timor, a group of young children actually who had put together a container of aid for their compatriots back at home. But I picked up significant concern and anxiety among that section of people in my, in my community, my constituency in Dungannon, around their, their status and around their situation generally. My concern in relation to this, and, and I, I understand that people can access medical emergency care, and I, I think that does and will happen because people need that. My concern is, in terms of the booster vaccine, that people will be afraid to come forward for a vaccine. So that's not something they absolutely have to get, but they're being encouraged. And I think given that we're dealing with a pandemic, I think it will be important that we extend that EU settlement scheme to reassure those people. And the other thing to consider here, and I know this from personal experience of working for many years running a business in this area and for further years working within the health system, that we're totally reliant on these people in terms of both frontline key businesses, such as food production um, and, and engineering, but also in terms of healthcare and domiciliary care and, and all of that. So they're particularly vulnerable within those settings and they're particularly important to us as a community in relation to so I think there's really a huge need to address the fact that this could add to any hesitancy to come forward to seek a vaccine, that they may be afraid this triggers a look into their status. And I think that's a significant issue. What's your thoughts on that, please? Um, we have been in contact with the Executive Office around the communications of the settlement scheme. And I just want to clarify, East Timor are generally Portuguese citizens. Some are, some, some are, yeah. some, some are, some aren't. But also, I'm just using that as one example. You've yeah. all the other, all the other communities as well. Yeah. In terms of the settlement status, um, it would be anyone who is a European. That won't apply to anyone that would have um, uh, another immigration status. So there, there is an issue around um, access to vaccines. And I do know that there has been some discussions, and we have been participating in those discussions, around no recourse to public funds. Um, you know, and people that may, uh, some people that may end up not being able to access or feeling vulnerable not to access treatments. Uh, and yes, you're quite correct around the, the vaccines. Um, I mean, I do think it's something that we probably should take away, Chair, um, and look at whether we need communications. And um, I can also speak to the, the COVID teams around the vaccine as to whether or not they have had any difficulties to date with the um, acceptance of and getting vulnerable and marginalised groups in the uptake of that and to address the settlement status within that mix. 
Yeah, okay. Thank you, Patricia. I think it is an important issue, so I appreciate your commitment to take that and have a look. Um, thank you. I'm going to go to members now. and uh, So uh, I'll, I'll go first of all to Alan Chambers, then I have Jerry Carroll, uh, Carol McKillen and Paula Bradshaw. So go ahead, please, Alan. And I could ask members uh, to be as brief as possible and panel with, with questions and answers, please, in light of time. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Certainly, I, I welcome any movement that uh, guarantees the unfettered supply of uh, medicines and medical devices uh, in the Northern Ireland uh, after the 1st of January 2022. Um, and I, I note that Cathy did say that the negotiations at the moment, uh, there was, uh, I think she said, a good, a good tone. Uh, but I, I want to refer back to uh, a presentation that the, the European Commission Vice President, Mr. Sokovic, made to a Stormont Committee uh, earlier this week. Uh, when he was asked about uh, the supply of medicines in the Northern Ireland, he's reported as saying, we are willing to consider taking bold steps if the UK government demonstrate a clear and concrete commitment to implementing the protocol in full. Now, that comes across to me as sounding like some sort of blackmail. I think it's quite disgraceful uh, that an EU um, uh, negotiator uh, would try to use the health and welfare of, of the citizens of Northern Ireland as some sort of a, a political football. So I just ask Cathy, does she feel that a statement of this kind uh, coming from uh, a, a senior EU figure, uh, does it compromise or undermine uh, your negotiating position around new arrangements? Uh, well, I mean, I suppose what I would say is that on the positive side is that we have now got and received in a proposal, you know, a written proposal has been received from EU, which outlines the details in relation to medicines. Now, they are, um, that's being given consideration and I can't provide any detail on it, but I think that that potentially is the more is, is the more important focus at the moment for me, uh, is I really need to understand the scope of that and how comprehensive the proposals are and the solutions are that have been put forward. Certainly the statement yesterday would suggest, I mean, the wor their words are that they are, they, um, it's a creative solution and also that um, the solution involves the EU changing its own rules. So, you know, it does, we do need to just see a little bit more detail on that. And, you know, I will come back to the committee with that information. Mr. Chambers, whenever I have more detail. But from that point of view, that would be my focus at the moment is let's see what we've got on the table at the moment, how far it goes, and um, take it from there. Yeah, well, it certainly seems to be that Mr. Sokova was maybe on a solo run on, uh, on Monday when he spoke to the committee. Thanks, Cathy. Thank, thank you, Alan. Go on uh, to Jerry then. Jerry Carroll, Leon Ray, Jerry, let's get cast. Good work. Uh, thanks. Uh, for a couple of questions, so we'll just run through them quickly together because I know we're tight for time. Uh, first one is is on the discontinuation of products. I know Cathy says it's uh, commercially sensitive, but uh, to, to be frank and with respect, I think we need a, a better answer than that. And I think we need to find out how many products we're talking about. Um, is it four? Is it five? Is it, is it twenty? Is it fifteen? Uh, what's the number? Uh, I think it's good enough that commercially sensitive is, is the argument. And, and you indicated that they may be easily replaceable. Um, and is that the case, just for, for clarity on that? Um, in regards to the cross-border, uh, the new cross-border treatment scheme, um, why is it only 12 months 
and, and is there a, an appeals process uh, in place to, to challenge that? Uh, and two other questions. Um, uh, obviously, the, the healthcare um, uh, scheme north and south uh, is important in terms of lack of services um, and considering the fact that still to this day, hundreds of women uh, still travel north and south for um, terminations. Has there been any discussions uh, about improving access uh, for women on the island? Uh, and then finally, on the EU settles, settlement scheme, uh, there's obviously, uh, as you've indicated, some flexibility, even though the scheme uh, has ended. Uh, but the problem is the flexibility uh, uh, lies with the Home Office, who aren't uh, Aren't always great to, to put it diplomatically when it comes to people's precarious uh, immigration status. Um, and what consideration have they, or will they give to people's uh, late applications um, being down to being unable uh, to get access to documents from their doctors or, or from whomever because of COVID? And also, if there's a, a period of time where their uh, their um, settlement status is being considered or being appealed. Uh, will they still have access uh, to uh, public funds um, if there's a period of time where they're unsure or their status is uh, on, uh, uncertain? Sorry about all the questions, but we're short on time, so I thought I'd just throw them all together. Thanks. Okay, thank you. So, Cathy, do you want to pick up first, or Patricia? Yep. Yes. Um, uh, so, th on the discontinuations, the numbers are quite low at the moment, and there, uh, there are no, there's a formal notification process. And when companies notify DHSC, it is on the understanding that the information will be handled sensitively. Um, so, it isn't something I can provide more information about in terms of how those are, uh, whether they're easily replaceable. I think what I said was that we need to go through on a case by case basis and see exactly what we're dealing. With. There will be a range of issues. I am, I am sure some, some will be. Uh, there will be other products available. Others, others may, others may not, and we'll have to look at other mitigations. But um, the, the, the six months period of notice does give us um, a bit of time to do, to, to allow us to work through that. Thank you. Okay. And were there other questions then for Patricia within that? Okay, I'll try and, and take you through these. Um, the 12 months and whether there's an appeals uh, or a challenge to that, the 12 months really is to get a scheme up and running and to allow us to do a full um, review of the policy and how it would go forward into the future. Um, because the Cross-Border Healthcare Directive does leave a gap in terms of how we work with other countries on this. And I, and I think it's important that we get the best outcome for the people of Northern Ireland and that the um, considerations are made appropriately. Um, we would obviously want to have a, a full public consultation on this as well to, to seek uh, um, particularly information from those that have travelled um, uh, to, to try and get the best policy and the best scheme if we're going ahead with it um, for Northern Ireland. In terms of the sort of um, agreements around terminations, unfortunately, that's not my area. Um, and so, I mean, we, I, I would advise potentially that that question be um, asked of the department. Um, and the settlement scheme, yes, um, the Home Office has been very lacking because kind of given details as to when or how they will accept late applications. Um, and what they will accept as an exceptional circumstance. And um, we have tried to get clarity on that, um, and it is still quite vague. And I think because of that, it, it just means that 
we can't, you know, we're not in a position to be advising people anyway. We can advise them to go to the support services, um, particularly advice and I and steps to to get advice on how they can apply. Um, but yes, if someone has applied and has a a certificate of uh, application, they're they're basically their status remains as it was. Um, so they will be able to get access to healthcare, social services, etc., as if they were did have a settled status until the end of the process, whether that be through appeals and reviews. And as I said earlier, it could take up to a year. They're expecting for those that may go through the full length of the process um, on that application. Thanks, and um, Tricia, could you share with the committee the? Uh, I know that you said the advice was pretty vague, but the vague advice. With, uh, from the Home Office and also if you have mm -hmm. any clarity around the access to um, um, benefits and, and healthcare, if you have that in writing, uh, that would be useful. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Jerry. Carol Nicholin. Uh, Carol, Lanarelish request. Chester, yeah. all. Gordon Melgate, Carly. Um, so, Jerry's asked a question around commercial sensitivity. I wanted to ask that as well. So, it's really just a criteria for commercial sensitivity um, and indeed, um, you know, like if there, you did say there were negotiations going on and you hoped um, that they would be clarified in the future, you know, could we have a bit more detail on that? Um, and um, the other question really is, um, I suppose it's around the, the, it's already been covered as well, the EU settlement status. Um, but also the MOU and the cross border, you know. So, um, Patricia, what I what, what I want clarification on, if you don't mind, is if, for example, the cost of a procedure or a, a diagnostic is there in the south, for example, then then what it would be from the HSA here, then who is where's the negotiating there, and are the patients expected? To meet that shortfall, sure. That's my questions. Yeah, go ahead, Jaffe. Um, yes, um, on the the details around that commercial insensitive, I can provide something in writing after the meeting. Now, um, the the um, an explanation of, around that. Um, the negotiations um, that you refer to um, have now resulted in. Um, the UK government are providing a, a solution to a proposal to the EU, and the EU now coming back with a formal a range of formal solutions. That that's that's what we're considering at the moment. So the negotiations have yielded um, some outputs, which we now need to just go through the detail of in relation and, to see how far and, they go. Yeah, and Kathy and Chair, just very very briefly. So does commercial sensitivity, if those drugs are going to be sourced within Britain, where is the commercial sensitivity with, you know, which jurisdiction is it with as well? Oh, uh, um, I suppose the issue here is the, the release of information, you know, that, that, well, who's it held by? Sorry, your question. It's managed that information is managed by DHSC I suppose it's the easiest that's Department of Health and Social Care the companies um, notify DHSC under certain conditions and they understand how their information will be handled 
and yes. that's why that's why the DHSE share certain information with us so that we are kept aware and so that I can update you and I can update Minister but we don't get into a lot of detail. We can, I'm not at liberty to disclose that because the information is held by DHSC, it's owned by them. Okay, so you're not going to have to follow European um, notices around that commercial sensitivity. So, listen, if you can get that in writing, we'd all appreciate it. I'll just leave it there, Chair, and we'll press for time. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Um, going into Paula. Go ahead, Paula, please. Um, thank you, Chair. Thank you, panel, for this morning. Um, my, my first question is in relation to um, what is the situation with approval of new drugs after December 2021 um, in terms of EMA or um, MHRA? And then the second one is in relation to the cross-border healthcare um, provision. Um, so this, the way I read it is that you source the rider, you pay up front, you cover, shortfall, cover any shortfall, so why is the same process not accessible to independent sector hospitals in Northern Ireland? So that's the first one. And then the second, sorry, the second part of that is, can you go privately to an independent hospital and get a diagnosis? And then that allows you then to get into, to go to the Health and Social Care Board to then go, go to the South. So it's really just around the logistics. Thank you. In, re in relation to medicines and approval, um, what we anticipate doing is continuing to follow our existing arrangements. And there's sort of a, a broadly a two-stage um, here. First is the, the marketing authorization being given to the drug. So that would be the centrally authorized medicines would cover most of our innovative medicines. Um, Paula, you know, like our, our new cancer medicines and other medicines that we uh, would be waiting for. And those ones that we would then, um, so the marketing authorization is stage one. So those will all go through centrally authorised route um, um, for UK and ourselves and then in terms of GB and ourselves sorry and then the next stage is once you've got the market authorisation the process starts in terms of how NICE will consider them for use within the health service and you know we follow NICE so our, um, our aim is that we will maintain those arrangements and you know there may be some issues that arise that we, we, that we need to consider uh, that we're working through, that we're going to be working through now in the coming weeks and months, in relation to if there are any differences between ourselves and in, in relation to any divergence. Thank you. Okay. In answer to your other questions, um, the reason why it currently isn't available to the Northern Ireland independent sector is that it is based on the cross-border healthcare directive which wasn't available to the independent sector um, in Northern Ireland um, prior to exit. This is the reason why it is a 12-month scheme as well, as I've explained earlier, is to look at all of the, the various different options. And it would be that if it is the independent sector, you know, we would need to consider that. Should we be allowing this to the independent sector in Northern Ireland? Should we be allowing it to the independent sector in GB? You know, so those things need to be considered, which is why the scheme is a 12-month scheme with a review of the full policy. So yes, we're aware that that uh, you know that that is an issue, but as I said, it is based on the cross-border healthcare directive, um, which didn't um, allow for access within your home territory. Um, in terms of getting an independent sector 
diag a, a diagnosis, yes, that is quite appropriate to then go take that to the um, to the board to ask for authorisation to travel. And just then on uh, Carol's question as well, um, yes, the. Um, the patient meets the shortfall between what it would cost to the board um, or to the health and social care in Northern Ireland and the private health care cost uh, in the South. So there, there is a patient element and there is a, a board element of the cost of treatment. Uh, so can I just come back very quickly, Chair? Yeah. I'm just conscious that because this is no longer an EU requirement to have this, and this is no. obviously something that is desirable, so I'm not, I'm not um, knocking it down, but is there not the potential that this scheme could be legally challenged by those independent sector providers in Northern Ireland or in GB? Because it does seem like unfair competition. Uh, to be honest, yes, we have considered that that is a possibility with this scheme. It is an arrangement under the... Um, 1972 order um, and we have looked at that and have considered that which again is why the scheme is a 12-month scheme to allow us to consider the full application of this policy rather than the cross-border healthcare directive as such the full policy of allowing people to seek treatment in an independent sector to have part of the funds to the cost to the healthcare paid back, reimbursed to them, and whether or not that should apply to Northern Ireland, UK, um, the Republic of Ireland, or to Europe and or wider, because we've also had um, correspondence and you know considerations from people going to Turkey for treatment, which wouldn't have fallen under the Cross-Border Healthcare Directive. So there's a lot of things that we need to consider, and to give a scheme under elements that would apply, we have this is why it's to the Republic only. It is based mostly on the cross-border healthcare directive. And then this 12 months period, we will consider all of those other um, options and considerations. Okay, thanks Thank very much. Yeah, and I have another couple of indications now in from Chiara and Arlea. So we're going to go to Chiara and I'm going to ask everybody just to be uh, as brief as possible with questions and replies. Thank you. Go ahead, Chiara. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, panel. I'm very mindful of time, so I just have the one question. Um, when you were before us uh, on December of 2020, I had asked around radioactive isotopes. As we know, they're a crucial part of cancer treatment. Um, so I'm just looking now that we're six months post-transition period, uh, if you just have an update on that or any concerns. Thank you. Um, um, no, uh, not at the moment. Not at the moment. Um, our arrangements for radioactive isotopes were affected um, um, by um, the uh, um, the protocols introduction in January, and our supplies were that we relied on, which were flown into East Midlands Airport and then on to Belfast Airport, were actually diverted via Dublin. So that did cause some issues in really for our trusts. Um, that we've sort of worked through. My team, as you know, deal with a lot of sort of day-to-day -day issues in relation to um, working with the trusts and working with the companies involved. I'm pleased to say that those issues now are resolved and we're back into our direct to Belfast deliveries again. But, uh, but it's an area we keep a very, very close eye on um, and uh, because obviously it's, you know, it's time critical nature of, of, of the drugs. But at the moment, we've reverted back to our Belfast deliveries. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. And thank you, Kara, and thank you, Catherine, and uh, uh, then finally, Orlea Flynn. Go ahead, Orlea, please. Orlea, I'll get to Colin, and good to see you again, Cathy and Patricia. 
Um, so my first question, Cathy, you had mentioned in your remarks around so some of the stakeholders within the supply chain um, are awaiting confirmation from the Department of Health regarding future arrangements. And apologies if I've missed some of the, the context of what you were talking about, but if you could just elaborate a wee bit more on, on what that is that, um, that the, the Department of Health still have to confirm with the, with the, um, the stakeholders. And you had also mentioned that, obviously, you know, we've spoke about this for the past couple of months, that um, a lot of companies and suppliers are, um, you know, looking at reconsidering their options and that some have rerouted to using the, you know, going through the South as opposed to um, Britain. And also that issue around looking at some of the, the joint packaging with the South. And I'm wondering, with that process taking place, do you have any sort of figures on how many companies are starting to go via that route and if there has been any issues with that or you know hopefully if that process seems to be you know it, it seems to be progressing straightforward enough because i think that would be um a positive that you know it's not all doom and gloom and that obviously solutions can can be worked out my, my second point is around and i'm just conscious that any time that you know this is a public meeting and the public will be you know, watching in on a lot of these committee meetings and, you know, some of these issues have been discussed and debated in the chamber as well. And I'm always conscious that whenever we're talking about issues around shortages, discontinuations of drugs and medicines, um, that, you know, people watch in on this and, and, and that can worry them. So it's just important that, you know, I think even the fact that, Cathy, you had mentioned that, um, that that drug for lung cancer, that there was that lag period, um, but the important thing for me was that patients had access to that treatment, that they had access to that drug, um, so and that it was managed and it was worked through. So fair play to you for, for all the work that you've done to, to oversee that. Um, but the question on the discontinuations, I, I'm just wondering um, that so it's small numbers that, that you are dealing with that has went into the into the portal where, where medicines have been discontinued. And, you know, I know we've spoke before about that um, there's the supply disruption alerts that, that are constantly in the system. And you had said before, Cathy, that they're, you know, quite normal and it's a normal thing to have, you know, to get those disruption alerts. And um, Briefly, please, Orlea. Sorry, I'm just wondering then, is it the levels that you are dealing with? Is that the normal levels of disruption and discontinuation um, that you usually be dealing with? And can it be down to a global supply chain issue, or is it more as a result of um, the the result of of Brexit? Cathy, you're on mute. You're on mute, Cathy. Sorry, everyone. Um, okay. Okay. So industry are specifically waiting for guidance relating to what is expected of them when the grace period ends. So um, that will be informed now by this, uh, the offer from the EU and, it's, and it's, um, the analysis of that will then inform, right, okay, what advice can be given to industry? That will then allow industry to start to make firm decisions and the issue around uh, and whether or not they have to reroute. The companies that have been speaking to me have been advising that the, one of the consequences of, of, of the protocol for them is that they will, they will, they would, they would potentially have to reroute. I have no evidence that they're doing that um, on any kind of large scale. I have, we don't monitor that at the moment. They have, but they are. So I don't think it's active currently, but it is something that's on the cards from uh, Jack. 
anyway there's really no need for them to do anything at the moment because we're in the grace period so they really it's still in the planning process um shortages and discontinuation is a really important point that that you make around reassurance to the public first of all the the, the global market and and medicines is oh, there's always issues arising across the world and we are dealing constantly with um you know issues there's a high level of surveillance across the uk and whenever issues are arise, are arise we provide advice out in terms of short um, shortage disruptions alert, supply disruptions alert, sorry, and other advice. There's um, there's no real significant increase at the moment in those. Um, the thing that could start to change in the future is uh, that uh, dependent, of course, on the outcome of these uh, of the of these negotiations and the, the proposal that's on the table. Um, you know, we may have we may have more specific Northern Ireland issues to deal with that don't affect the rest of, of the UK. But in all in all cases, um, you know, our our aim will be that we maintain continuity of treatments. I um, don't want anyone to be listening to be worried at this moment in time about their about their treatment um, or or medicines. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So, listen, um, I want to thank the panel very much um, for your detail and for your commitment to forward on some further information in writing to the committee. Um, I want to wish you all the very best of luck as you continue to work through what are extremely difficult issues and issues of, of concern for the committee, and we appreciate the, the engagement on that on that basis. Um, but to just wish you all the very best and, and take care in the time ahead. Thank you very much. Okay, members, I'm going to take a very short break there now to try to get us back on track time-wise. So I'm going to take a five-minute break, please, so if we could come back at 11.48 to resume the meeting. Thank you. And, Clerk, can you take us out of a public session, please? 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. 
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. That's us live now, Chair. Okay, um, thank you. So we're we're now resuming our session, members, and thank you. And I'm now going to item seven, which is a departmental briefing on a UK statutory instrument. This is which is the Health Security EU Exit Regulations 2021. I refer members to tab seven of your pack, and in particular to the clerk's memo on this issue at tab seven point one. The minister has advised the committee that he has agreed a proposal for the British government to bring forward the health security EU exit regulations, which contain provisions relating to health security and health protection for which a devolved minister has powers to legislate. A departmental official is here today to brief members on the provisions of this statutory instrument and to answer any questions that the committee may have. So I'd now like to welcome Mr. Alistair McGaines, who is Head of Health Protection, and Dr. Jerry Waldron, who is Assistant Director of Public Health Health Protection within the Public Health Agency. So uh, I'll just check, first of all, Alistair, can you hear me there okay? Yes, I'm with you, Claire. Good morning. Okay, we're not seeing you, or I'm certainly not seeing you at present, Alistair, so I'm not sure I can hear you, but I'm not seeing you, so I'm not sure if there's maybe a camera issue that you can do something on your end there. I'll go then to Jerry and just to, to welcome you, Jerry, once again to our health committee meeting and to check if you can hear me okay. Yes, thank you, Jerry. I can hear you very well. Okay, so if I can advise uh, members of the panel and committee that... Uh, it's usually easier to hear where people are using headphones and or headsets, and also if people can be conscious of remaining on mute when they're not contributing to the session, that also helps with the sound quality. So I'm going to go back to you, Alistair. I'm still not seeing you. Um, if, if necessary, we can continue with your briefing um, without seeing, but as long as we can hear is the main thing. I'll poke around in the background while I'm, while I'm talking here, but as long as you can hear me. So, um, so good morning and uh, thank you for the opportunity to provide a briefing on the, on the health security uh, EU exit regulations. The regulations will, you know, the regulations were laid in Parliament on the 7th of June 2021. The intention is to have them debated by both Houses of Parliament before recess on the 22nd of July and then for them to come into effect on the 1st of September 2021. If I start with some very generic background, uh, and you can move me along if you prefer to jump straight to the regulations themselves. So very broadly, health security covers activities and measures across sovereign boundaries to mitigate public health incidents. So these regulations are being put in place to ensure a coordinated UK response to serious cross-border health threats. While the UK was a member state of the European Union, the four UK nations coordinated and shared information on public health protection with Public Health England, who were the UK's national competent authority and focal point for communications with the EU. The coordination function and the EU structures the UK would feed into were, were governed by EU legislation that currently remains within UK, within UK law. 
Now that the UK has left the EU, the structures established by the EU legislation are no longer open to us as they would be to a member state. So what these regulations do is repeal and modify retained EU law related to health security so that the UK's health security arrangements continue to cooperate effectively following a departure from the EU. And they also implement the trade and cooperation agreement insofar as it relates to health security. So turning to the regulations themselves, uh, the powers are drawn from section 8.1 uh, of the European Union Withdrawal Act 2018 and section 31 of the European Union Future Relationships Act 2020. So section 8 of the Withdrawal Act gives powers for a minister of the crown to make regulations to deal with deficiencies arising from withdrawal and section 31 of the Future Relationships Act gives powers to implement the cooperation and trade agreement. So I, I'm not proposing to go through line by line, but the, the regulations are divided into five parts and one schedule. So, so I'll cover the main provisions of each, each part, if that's okay. So part one primarily deals with the, the likes of the citation commencement and extent. One of the key things in part one though, is it establishes the UK Health Protection Committee. And that's probably one of the main new things in this set of regulations. And the committee is comprised of one official from each UK nation representing a minister, so effectively a civil servant from a department, and one official from each public health agency. And I'll touch on the role of the committee a, a bit later on. And uh, finally, part one of the regulations goes into a bit of detail about what exactly is meant by a serious cross-border health threat. Uh, part two of the regulations covers epidemiological surveillance in the United Kingdom. So it requires each public health agency to undertake epidemiological surveillance in its own part of the UK, and it requires information to be collected, and then it requires it to be shared with other UK public health agencies. Uh, part two also gives the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care to add, amend, or remove communicable diseases, communicable diseases or special health measures to the schedule to these regulations. And they do that on the advice of the UK Health Protection Committee. Uh, this part of the regulations gives a number of duties to the health, UK Health Protection Committee. So it gives it the duty to establish procedures for, for the surveillance and to maintain databases, evaluate data, and communicate that analysis to other UK health protection agencies. Part three of the regulations covers procedures for addressing serious cross-border health threats. So it requires the UK authorities to consult each other with a view to coordinating their efforts to develop, strengthen, and maintain their capability to monitor, warn, assess, and respond to serious cross-border health threats. It introduces the UK focal point communications protocol. And this protocol sets out the principles by which the UK nations will communicate to, to meet the cooperation and health security element of the uh, trade and cooperation agreement. Uh, the focal point for the UK is the UK Health Security Agency, which formerly was Public Health England. Uh, this part also sets out detail the information that must be included in any alert. Uh, given on a serious cross-border health threat, and it requires the UK public health agencies to act in accordance with the communications protocol. Uh, it sets out the duties for the UK authorities when coordinating the UK response to a serious cross-border health threat. And the idea is to ensure as much as possible a coordinated UK, UK approach to assessment, communication, and public health response. 
So it requires authorities to inform each other, but it specifically enables immediate measures to be taken for informing if, if there's an immediate risk to public health. Uh, and finally, this part uh, sets out the arrangements for communications between the UK focal point and the EU under the health security chapter of the trade and cooperation agreement. It details what happens when the UK focal point is alerted to a threat by one of the UK public health agencies and, it, what, and what happens if the UK focal point alerts the UK to a threat. Uh, I'm sorry, it also provides access, the, the opportunity for the UK to access the EU warning and response system uh, if both sides agree that that's appropriate. Um, Part four also provides powers for the Secretary of State to make regulations, uh, which basically he can add or amend the list of communicable diseases and related special health matters. He does this with the consent of ministers from the devolved administrations. And if the devolved administrations wish him to add uh, uh, or remove a disease, he must, he must have regard to that request. Uh, Part five of the regulations then revokes the three pieces of retained EU legislation that uh, this, this act or this regulation effectively uh, replaces. So that's the legislation that establishes the European Centre for Disease Control, uh, legislation that sets out the rules on epidemiological surveillance and monitoring and uh, combating serious cross-border threats to health. And finally, the bit that uh, requires the member states and the commission to alert each other of serious cross-border health threats. The schedule to the regulations then contains the list of communicable diseases, which we are required to notify, and the related special health measures that we're required to notify. So really in summary, and you can see that when you look at the EU functions that are being repealed, these regulations just replace a coordination function that was led by the EU and replaces it with UK-wide arrangements with a clear link into the EU systems where that's mutually, mutually beneficial uh, and mutually agreed. So look, that's, that's really my very quick run through the regulations. So uh, I'll have to take questions. Okay, thank you, Alistair. Um, first one I have, and I would be concerned around this, and I think peppered throughout your presentation there, you know, there is a, 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 an area of some concern. Um, and you had said at, at the early part of your presentation that the structures of the European structures are no longer available to us. Is that is that a, a potential threat to public health and to health security, the fact that we are now operating outside of those structures as a result of Brexit? I suppose in theory, the UK retains a high level of capability and where there is a serious cross-border health threat, the opportunity still exists for us to feed into those UK, into those EU systems. So that will be very much dependent on any individual threat and the incident. I mean, for example, we have access to those systems to deal with the COVID response. Um, uh, I, I suppose it's it's a moot point. Are, are we are we better off outside those systems and within them? I suppose it's not really for me to answer. The decision has been taken that we have left them. Yeah, and I'm and I'm and I'm and, and, and I understand that, Alistair. I'm trying to sort of I suppose drill into the potential health impacts of that, um, and therefore and therefore how 
how our own uh, health minister could or should uh, interact or interrelate, particularly given that we, uh, and I think this has been made abundantly clear over the, over the past, over the past in terms of the pandemic, is that we share that that border here on the island with the jurisdiction of the twenty six counties. Yeah, is there is there a recognition that we have unique? problems and, and potentially unique opportunities in terms of cooperation and is there any scope within this for that unique position to be recognized and for public health to be protected so we are vulnerable clearly to cross-border transmission of COVID-19 but even flu and any other communicable disease we're particularly vulnerable as are the 26 counties vulnerable from here so is there I, I don't get any sense of a recognition of the unique situation of the north in relation to sharing a lot mass here on a small island. Is there any way that we can impact that? Well, it's really, there's two, two angles to your question, I suppose. One is these arrangements are, are very specifically designed for, in, for, the, for the UK as a whole to, to coordinate with the European Union. There is nothing in these regulations that prevents us from dealing directly on a bilateral basis with, with, with Ireland. Um, health protection, health security remains a devolved matter. And... I suppose it, it would, it's entirely free for our minister to make whatever arrangements with Ireland that, that they, they are mutually beneficial to them. And on top of that, uh, and maybe I could bring Jerry in on this, that the public health agencies on both sides of the border have cooperated for years, and there is nothing in this regulation that prevents that from uh, happening on, on an ongoing basis. Yeah, Jerry, do you want to come in on that? Yes, of course. Thank you very much, Chair. And, and, and just to kind of amplify from Alistair's point of view, I mean, we're in the public health agency. We're not involved in making reg regulations. We're more involved in responding with them and, and, and dealing with the situation we're in. But um, over the past number of years before we were faced with the current crisis, I was working along with our colleagues um, in England, Scotland and Wales if you like, in preparation for this. I wasn't directly involved with the regulations, but we were working on a kind of non-legislative basis to, to ensure that, um, that, that, that we were able to cope with the situation that was there. The regulations, as Alistair said, are there because we're in a different situation, a political situation, if you like, at the moment. My concern always was in, in, in those regulations that, um, that whatever was going to happen, that uh, what what was available and what was in place before at the very at the very worst would be no different than than what would be in place afterwards and i made that clear and 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 indeed as you've mentioned we are in a unique position in northern ireland compared to the other um the the the, the other constituent parts of the, of, of the uk because of uh, the border with the republic of ireland uh, so, so that does need to. It, it may not necessarily be taken into account, but as Alistair has said, uh, we have had uh, very good connections with our colleagues in the Republic of Ireland in health protection over the years. And if anything, uh, the COVID pandemic has has deepened and widened those connections, and and we're we're almost on a a, a daily communication with them basis now. And I expect that to continue. The one line in the documentation that gave me a degree of reassurance was the line that said uh, there will be no change and that is the way I want to, to see it happening. We, can, we conduct and we have agreements with our colleagues in health protection in, in, in the Republic of Ireland about how, how we manage 
um, and that's not just in terms of COVID, but the, the general diseases. We can't foresee a situation where an individual in in um, in in Dundalk, for for example, will get a, a case of meningococcal disease and be in contact with an individual from Newry, and that we won't be told about that by our colleagues in the Republic of Ireland and vice versa. The reassurance that I have always been seeking in respect of that is that it will continue. Uh, we have had, in, in terms of the European institutions, particularly, we found very useful over the years our contacts with the ECDC, the European Communicable Disease Centre. Uh, I'm reasonably reassured uh, that despite um, EU exit, that those contacts will continue. And indeed, there, there's working on the, um, the newly established Health Protection Committee uh, to ensure that um, that, 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 that over, the oversight group, I mean, that, that Alistair mentioned. And indeed, I am currently the uh, public health agency's representative on that group, and that's something that I will be bringing to the table um, in, in terms of the outworkings of that group as it, as, as it arises. So in, in, in brief, um, I'm reasonably uh, satisfied that um, there isn't going to be any change. Obviously, it's a watch, I'll be keeping a watching brief on it and, and, and seeing how things pan out um, over the next period of time. And if there are any concerns, I'll certainly be alerting uh, colleagues to that. And in practical terms, Jerry, can you outline for me how that will, will roll out? So around uh, regulation, around number 11, there's coordination of response. Um, and that it appears that that co co response will be coordinated within this within this statutory instrument. With a that will be coordinated in Britain. How is that going to be coordinated north south in a practical sense? Considering we have an MOU recognising the island as a single epidemiological unit. That's 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 right, Chair, and and that's very important. I mean, the the discussions that we had uh, within uh, the four nations. Um, uh, within Northern Ireland, England, Scotland, and 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 Wales, uh, recognised and was was sort of focused on how we would coordinate uh, within those areas. But in addition to that, we do have, as you mentioned, the whole business of the epidemiological unit. We have had a long, long period and experience um, over the years of working together between the emergency services on, on both sides of the border. There's a long, fruitful cooperation there. And I would envisage that there is nothing in these regulations that would prevent that from, from continuing and from going on. That would be my, certainly be my expectation. So what's happening at the moment in terms of the excellent mutual cooperation that happens on both sides of the border is going to continue. And uh, it must continue because as you quite rightly said, we are we are on one landmass. We are one epidemiological unit, and and uh, our responses in terms of of uh, threats to uh, the the health of of populations on both sides of that border must uh, take that into account and must recognise it. Yeah, I think I think it's vital that it continues, but not only continues, but develops and deepens actually, because we have identified that there are areas where there's the need for improvement and, and potential for improvement. So thank you for that. A couple of quick ones from me before I go to members then. You'd mentioned that there will be a, a, a membership from each of the from each of the four areas, including one from here. At the start of this pandemic, it was very clear that in terms of sage 
our chief medical officer was not a full member, had only a kind of observer status in a way and, and wasn't able to ask questions. Will we be a full member of this body in relation to the proposal that's in front of us today? Very specifically, we will be. Um, it is designed that way. Uh, it's, it, it's set in legislation that that all four administrations in the UK are full members. And in our initial discussions about the workings of the committee, we have decided that, for example, a meeting can go ahead without everyone uh, being present, but no decisions can be made without the explicit agreement of each administration. Okay, and um, the final final one for me for now for you, Jerry, and I think it's more for you. In general, would you have a concern as a public health professional that this uh, the emphasis of this statutory incident moves away from public health towards health security, which is a, a slightly different dynamic? Have you any concerns this will undermine the delivery and the focus on public health? Well, my my hope and my expectation, chair would be that it wouldn't but i think i think uh we do need to to bear that in mind and i think that's something that needs to be taken into account that health security and health protection are not quite the same thing health protection has a very wide brief and remit whereas health security focuses on borders and containing um, and preventing the spread of disease across those borders ensuring that a jurisdiction is is secure in terms of health health uh, which is if you like, it's 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 a narrow, it's a much narrower focus than the the wider brief of health protection, and also um, because it, it 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 takes that security aspect into account, it goes it goes beyond uh, the roles and responsibilities of an agency like the public health agency. There are other agencies in in into play in terms of securing borders, but um, it's 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 another approach. Um, it's a new way of looking at things. My hope and my expectation is that the wide range of of health protection continues to be um, respected and continues to, to 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 shape itself if i can just come in and final one for me then yeah go ahead yeah. i was just going to say uh, it's, it's important to remember then that, that these regulations specifically deal with with the health security aspect underneath these regulations then there are uh, there's a framework document and other work streams going on sort of related to this that deal specifically with the health protection side and improving the, the health protection response of all of the four uh, UK uh, administrations. So it, it, this, this is certainly should not detract from any of that work. It just deals specifically with how we deal with the, the security angle. Okay. And does the regulations tie the hands of the department or the PHA with agreeing a common approach to uh, with Dublin, where that where that may be in our interest, but is different to the approaches across in, in Britain? Is it, will that tie the hands of our of our uh, of our department here? No health remains. Um, Chair, uh, sorry, I, go ahead, Alistair. Well, sorry. sorry. No, well, health remains a fully de a fully devolved matter. Um, th th there's nothing in this that prevents uh, the health minister taking whatever action he wants to take. What this does is tells him that under certain circumstances, there are reporting and coordination requirements with the rest of the UK. He's free to do what he wants on a bilateral basis. Okay, thank you, Jerry. Yes, Chair, in terms of, of PHA, um, I have no concerns about our hands being tied in terms of our cooperation with our colleagues uh, on the other side of the border. Um, and we will continue to develop those links 
um, as time goes on. As I said, they've improved with COVID and we will continue that improvement. Um, hopefully once COVID begins to recede, uh, it won't make a difference in that. Thank you both. And I'll go then to Jerry Carroll. Uh, Jerry, go ahead, please. While I'm just waiting to check back with Jerry, I'll just check with the clerk. Do we have any other indications, clerk, if, if, with you from members looking to ask questions on this before I go back to Jerry Carroll? No other indications, Chair. Can you hear me, Chair? Okay. Okay, so yeah, I'm just checking. Have we got you on the line, Jerry? Go ahead, please, with your question. Thanks, Chair. Sorry, camera's acting up here. Um, just a question, maybe for Jerry, I suppose, um, in terms of the SI and, and the rollout of it, because obviously, I mean, we've had uh, the MOU for dealing with COVID, but I think the, the cooperation, at least between the administrations, has been not really uh, an existence in any real sense. There's been uh, problems with sharing information, passenger locator forms, and in some cases either uh, seemingly no coordination or a complete divergence of, of decisions being made. So I mean, how confident is the department um, with the SSI coming in uh, that there will be uh, the ability to to cooperate uh, at a policy level uh, beyond just sort of the day-to-day -day, uh, cooperation uh, with yourself and your uh, counterparts in the South? Because I suppose it would be a concern that um, when there's a requirement to take action across the island, um, both administrations acting in unison, um, it hasn't really happened <laughs> at all, uh, maybe on a on a small level with COVID, um, what's to say that it's going to happen uh, with the CSI and, and future um, health uh, risks emerging? So if you answer that, that would be helpful. Thanks. Uh, thank you very much. I think uh, I, I, I'm not sure what I can say in terms of, of, of policies and, and people at a, a level beyond um, PHA cooperating. It, it is difficult because it requires, um, it requires two, two uh, governments, jurisdictions, if you like, to to act act in harmony, and and sometimes the wheels can grind exceedingly slow. What I can certainly, hopefully, assure you of is the fact that there are on on the ground, on practical terms, on the day to day basis, that the connections are there, the connections are made, the connections will continue between the public health agency and uh, the appropriate parts of of HSE in the Republic of Ireland. Okay, okay. Um, thank you. Um, so, members, I, I, I want to thank the panel for coming and giving your briefing here today. And um, I, we can we we'll go ahead now and, and and deal with the rest of the business relations. But thank you for attending. I don't see any other indications there. So, thank you, member. Thank you, panel. Thank you very much, and all the best for now. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so members, uh, have there any further issues to raise in relation to that statutory instrument? Keith, sure. can those, can those the, the content of those concerns be raised and forwarded to the department or, or whoever is, is best placed? Sure. Sorry, Karen, just give me a second. I'm just checking, clerk. Um, can you advise if the, if the discussions there and the issues raised can be forwarded on? Yep, certainly we can we can forward on the issues that have been raised by members to the department um, to reflect the discussions. 
Okay, and um, your sound is, is fairly poor. Keith, there, just I'm not sure if you can do anything about that. Carol, go ahead. Uh, Chair, I, I don't know what happened to have that happen on my part, but really what I want to be honest with you, I think that's important right It seems that we've lost uh, access to the early warning response, the early warning and data response system operated by ACDC, um, and it's placed with to go through almost the, the Department of Health in Britain. Um, so, I mean, and they have to be satisfied that there's a relevant threat. So I would just like more information on that because I don't believe it was covered properly, Chair, to be honest. Okay. Um, again, Claire, can we seek further information on that? It's certainly, Chair. Yep. Um, any other issues members wish to raise? No, okay. Well then, um, can I uh, ask if members then therefore are content to note? Yeah, thank you. Moving on then, members, to item eight, which is the draft SR on food and feed hygiene and safety miscellaneous amendments, regs. I can advise members that the examiner of statutory rules has identified a drafting issue with the above SR. The Food Standards Agency has agreed to correct the issue and lay a new draft SR. Are members content, therefore, to defer consideration until next week for that new draft? Thank you. Yeah, members content. Uh, item nine is the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Regulations 2021 Amendment Number Seven Regs NI 2021. I refer members to the papers at tab nine and in particular to the clerk's memo at tab nine point one. I can advise members this SR makes a technical change in relation to the requirement to produce a risk assessment for a gathering. A departmental official is here today to brief the committee and answer any questions members may have on this SR. I can advise members that the SR is subject to the confirmatory procedure and that the examiner of statutory rules has no issues to raise. So we'd now like to welcome Ms. Elaine Colgan, Head of Health Protection Branch. Um, can you hear us, Elaine? Um, oops. Yes, Chair. Uh, can you hear me okay? okay? I can hear you there fine, Elaine, and you're very welcome. I know you're normally here on travel <laughs> regulations, but this one is slightly different, so I'll just flag that to members. And we're also joined by Miss Marianne McKeever from the Health Protection Branch. Marianne, can you hear me okay? Thank you. Thank you. So listen, without further ado, welcome to you both to Fulcher Rove, and I'll go straight back to yourself, Elaine, to uh, brief members on the SR, please. Thank you. Thank you, Chair, um, and thank you for the invitation to attend today. Um, as you mentioned, this was a technical amendment as opposed to a policy change, so I will just outline that, but there is no corresponding kind of assessment of the public health situation at the time because it wasn't a policy change as such, it was a, a, a correction of an error. Uh, so this, members will be aware from their previous briefing by my colleague Nigel McMahon that the fourth amendment to the restriction regulations provided for relaxations in relation to both indoor and outdoor gatherings from the 24th of May. So those relaxations where indoor gatherings not at domestic settings were permitted subject to a risk assessment where numbers were over 15. And outdoor gatherings were then subject to a limit of 500 with a number of exceptions and a risk assessment was required where numbers exceeded 30. The regulations in, in Regulation 9 contains a provision that where a risk assessment is required to be completed, that upon request by a relevant officer, which is an enforcement officer, that the organiser of the event must provide a copy of that risk assessment. 
So at the time on the 24th of May, a drafting error omitted to connect that requirement for enforcement to the production of the risk assessment under those newly drafted provisions. So RSR Amendment number seven corrected this and ensured that anywhere in the regulations where risk assessment is required, that there is always a requirement to produce it upon request. Uh, I should emphasize that the requirement to produce a risk assessment was, was always, or, sorry, the, the requirement to produce the risk assessment in, in the sense of develop it was always in place and enforcement officers could always ask to see it. The only difficulty would arise was if a person refused to provide it and no further action would be able to be taken against them. I have, however, confirmed with PSNI that there was no impact operationally on any cases that they are aware of at this point that were ongoing between the date of the changes to the outdoor gatherings and the making of this amendment on the 21st of June. Uh, I hope that's been helpful and Mary and I are both happy to take any questions members may have. Okay, thank you. So I'm going to go first of all to Carol McKillen and then I will go to Jerry Carroll. So go ahead, Carol McKillen and I'll write it up. Thanks, Elaine. Um, so the questions I have really is in relation to outdoor gatherings. Um, so, um, so in the summer, in particular, there's always a lot of outdoor activities um, right across the pace. Should it be festivals, parades, or whatever it is, uh, even you know summer schemes and stuff like that. So, um, in terms of this um, regulation. Um, is it still her should the risk assessment not be carried by the organizer um, as part of this? What you're saying is it should be there, they should have it, and if asked, they should be able to produce it. So should they not be able to carry it? And then, okay, for example, you have a festival and you have like gigs playing a concert on, and you have 500 in for one part, then someone else wants to go and see another act and you've got another 500 is there a time difference is there because i'm just conscious that you know with the great weather you might have more outdoor activities because people generally believe it's safer so regarding all that um, thanks, Carol. Um, you were breaking up there towards the end, but I think I think I picked up the main points of your question. So, the first one, if I understood correctly, it, it's about the risk assessment and whether the organizer actually has to have it with them at any point in time. Um, so, the they don't whilst they have to complete it and they have to be able to produce it on request, they do have twenty four hours to produce it when requested to do so. So, they don't actually have to be able to pr produce it instantly. Um, with regards to the numbers and outdoor gatherings, Marion, would you be happy to take that question? Yeah, no problem. Um, the likes of the festivals that you referred to there, Carl, um, the gatherings would be one gathering. If they're, they're gathering for the common purpose of attending a festival, that would be regarded as one gathering. Um, you couldn't have multiple gatherings of 500 at each festival. It would be for that one event would be the maximum currently is 500 capacity. So, so. We lost your sound there, Carol. I sorry, Colin, my camera and my sound is going on and off automatically without even me touching it. So apologies. So maybe festivals is a wrong example, but what I'm, so if, say for example, it was a parade, the, the FLA, in West Belfast, and normally you would have thousands, kids and all, floats and all that attending it. 
So is that considered one event or do you have one group of 500 with a break and then another group of 500? Oh, sorry. Um, I think it would depend on on the events. You know, if it's um, multiple events going on, then each event would be a gathering, as opposed to um, you know that full thing. I, I think it depends on how the events broken down. Yeah, I, I think Marion's right there. I think it it the the, the main the main point is the common purpose, um, and then where the place is so they have to be gathered at the same place as well with a common purpose so each event um and it will be difficult over the summer i'm sure we will have to address uh, queries on specific events as they come through um, but it will very much depend on the individual circumstances of the event okay thank you thank you and jerry carol jerry briefly as you can please yeah thanks sorry sure sure again the cameras hacking up as well um, just in regard of uh, the requirement to produce the risk assessment, uh, and just a clarity that that is on request from a, a police officer or an enforcement officer. Uh, and did you say um, there is uh, a punishment in place within, the, within this or or cooperate? Is there a punishment that they're a fine, or what is the um, response um, um, allowed, if you will? Thanks. Um, yeah, so there is a, an enforcement provision that is um, able to be taken on failure to comply with the direction. Um, I don't know offhand the actual fine amount. Um, Marion, are you aware which one of it is? If not, we can go back uh, in writing just to confirm which of the, the enforcement notices would be applicable to that. No, I'm not. I'm not too sure off the top of my oh, head. Yeah, we'll we'll just confirm that back in writing, Jerry, if that's okay. Yeah, I appreciate it. And just just fine as well. I mean, is there any grounds for um, a reasonable excuse or, or or you know a basis for an appeal if if if, if a fine is issued? Yeah, it's not reasonable, obviously. I mean, do we know where where the scope is for challenge on that? Thanks. That, yeah, we'll need to look at that when we work out which of the um, enforcement penalties it would be. So it would be a, we'll, we'll kind of just build that all into the one response, if that's okay, and come back to you. Okay, thanks. Okay, thank you, Jerry. Um, thank you, Elaine and Marion, for your attendance today and for addressing those issues for members and for con committing to coming back with further information. Thank you. We'll go ahead with our, with our consideration now, and good luck for the time ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you, members. Um, have members any further issues they wish to raise in relation to that ASR? Um, Jerry, is your hand up again there? Sure, um, I mean, it may not be an issue, but um, I think we should maybe, um, with your obviously and the committee's ag agreement, maybe hold off if we can, um, because the, the information I think uh, that we we'll require back uh, is quite important and maybe. Um, uh, Unsubstantial in terms of changing people's opinion on the SR, but you know it, it could be. So I don't know what what our, what our time frame is on, on this SR, but I, I'd be keen on a bit more information on it. Claire, can you advise in relation to timing? Um, certainly, Chair. We haven't had a confirmation of um, the department schedule in that for next week. So um, the end of the statutory periods, the fifteenth of September. Um, so we we can have a bit of time on it. Um, 
and I know it's, the department just hasn't confirmed when the rule will be scheduled for plenary. I see it's not in the order paper for next week, um, so I presume that means it probably will be September time. Okay, well, I, I'm just I'm just conscious. Um, so that that would give us time to defer it. I think it would be better if we could deal with it next week, just because we don't know. I take it that sitting days, it, were there a need for additional sitting days over the summer, could very quickly change the situation in relation to this. Yes, I'm correct. So yep. it might be better done sooner rather than later if we can push for the response. That be an option? No problem. We can certainly get that response away straight away. Okay, so members content to defer till we receive those responses back. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Jerry. Item ten, then members. Yeah, go. Yeah, is that Jerry or, or Keith? Just saying thanks. <laughs> okay, thank you, Jerry. Okay, members, moving on to item ten, SL one, the establishment and agencies fitness of workers revocation regulations. At last week's meeting, members, you'll remember we received correspondence from the department on this issue and we agreed to write to the department to outline that we would like to see this come through the SL1 process, as would normally be the case. Therefore, at item 10, there is an SL1 from the department now advising that it intends to make a statutory review to revoke the establishment and the agency's fitness of workers regulations NI 2020. Those regulations were made on the 2nd of April 2020 to give effect to a temporary COVID-19 pre-employment vetting policy that permitted employers to recruit staff more quickly to health and social care posts on the basis of more limited pre-employment checks in order to address the urgency of the pandemic. So are members now content that the department makes the statutory rule? Yes, members are content. Chair? Chair? Yes, Chair. go ahead, Paula, yeah. Thank you. I'm just wondering where they have taken people on through this, um, these sort of limited pre-employment checks and they're still in post. Are they now going to go back and do the full range of checks or are they just assuming that they're now part of the staff and they don't have to, to do that? I was reading the paper there. I couldn't get, a, I couldn't get clarity on that. Um, Clerk, can you provide any clarity or could we seek some clarity? We can certainly write back to the department to seek that clarity. Um... There's, there's no problem with that, Chair. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, okay, thank you, members. So, um, members, I am I am conscious of I am conscious of time. We need to conclude the meeting today at twelve forty. We may need to deal with some of items of correspondence or forward work program via email. So, with members' indulgence, I propose to move to any other business now to ensure that that's completed, and then we can go back to dealing with whatever we can up to twelve forty and come and come back to that. So, I'm going to go to any other business and have an indication there from Carol. Go ahead, Carol, please. Sorry, Chair, my, my computer's just going nuts today. Um, it's just to get any feedback on that fire station in Newton Arts, even if that can be shared okay. by um, But I think we need to get it today. It's quite a serious situation. Okay, so I'll just check with the clerk if, we, if there's been any progress in relation to that issue that was raised at the start of the meeting. Go ahead, clerk, please. Yes, Chair, we, we've just had a response in the last couple of minutes from the Chief Fire and Rescue Officer. Do you want me to read okay. it out? Are you content with yes, that? Yes, please go ahead, Keith. I think that would be useful um, for members. So it's also been cleared by the Minister. So it states, Northern Ireland Fire and Rescue Service has confirmed that plans are in place to ensure emergency cover is maintained within the Newton Arts area and across the service. 
The Fire and Rescue Service will continue to monitor the situation. However, the management of bonfire sites does not sit with the Fire and Rescue Service. Fire and Rescue Service believes that local agreement between landowners, the local community and those who have built bonfires is always the most effective means to address these issues. And that's so, the end of the response. So, Chair, I'm basically taking from that is that that, that um, facility can't be used because there's a bonfire on it, but they'll get fire cover from elsewhere. And basically, that's it. Yeah, I think that's that's broadly what I would be taking out of it as well, I have to say. I have to say, I think our chair really do. I'd be particularly concerned, well, I'm concerned, I'm concerned particularly going into, this is traditionally a very, very busy time for the fire service. They do be stretched over a very short period of time, and this certainly can't help. So um, I wonder, I, 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 I think we should write back, to be quite honest, to impress upon the minister. I think it's urgent. There's also a workforce issue here where, where people work in this station and I think it's a very poor reflection in terms of those people's ability to go to their place of work and carry out what is emergency cover for the whole community. Um, I, I think we should we should write back and express our concern to, to the Minister in relation to this that, that, that this, that this would be a key piece of infrastructure out of commission in a key period of time for, for the service. Yeah, I, I agree, I agree. Members content with that? Um, Chair? Yeah. Yes, go ahead, Paula. Try to go further than that. I think that this is an, a, a TEO issue. You, the, the FIC report is not just about flags, but it's also about how we handle bonfires. And I've met with the um, local um, fire chiefs in, in South Belfast regarding Sandy Road, etc., in the past. And, and it's really not satisfactory that they are having to risk assess whether if they move the wood or, or whatever, that then that might kick off and have trouble elsewhere that the police have to deal with. You know, this is a societal issue. Obviously, it's an arts at the minute, but it could well be any town or city across the province. So I think we need to write to 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 ask them what they're going to do about a more comprehensive approach to handling bonfires and the antisocial um, aspect that, that they can bring. Yeah, yeah. sure. I've, I've, no, I've no issue with that. I mean, that's quite legitimate question to ask, but it doesn't deal with this, the situation that an emergency service is, is almost closed down and the staff in that building are hemmed in because of a, a bonfire. And I, I really do think kicking this down the can to another department isn't good enough. Um, and I just I mean, um, like, if it was in my condition, No, Chair, Chair, just to clarify, I was meaning this as an additional aspect that the Northern Ireland Fire and Rescue Service are having to deal with perennially. Thank you. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that was, yeah, I, I, I thought that was additional, and I think that's in that sense. Um, the, the other thing is, I don't think in relation to uh, a key piece of infrastructure like fire service or indeed any other health service estate, that we can take the normal approach of just going through the normal uh, negotiations. I think that uh, that clearly needs to be addressed urgently and outside of the normal processes. I don't think we have time or it's good enough that we just uh, we just sort of engage on that issue. It's an emergency service for a reason. Are members content then that we write uh, on, on both Charles and Paula's lines that we write off to TEO and Health asking for urgent consideration of this matter? Agree. Yeah, okay. Thank you, members. Um, so, members, now it's 11. Any other items of business today? Any other business? 
No. Okay, well, I will revert then to correspondence and see how we get on. We have a few minutes left. So I'll draw your attention to a couple of items there. Ele item 11.2 is a response from the department providing further information relating to the independent neurology inquiry teams, terms of reference, the cohort C recall and the neurology services review. Members will remember this was in your meeting pack last week and that we agreed to defer consideration until today and to give members a chance to have a look through that. So any additional comments in relation to that, members? Or are members content to note for now? Okay, and we have we have said that we were, were seeking an update as well from the department around a number of those inquiries that are ongoing. Item 11.3 is a correspondence from the Minister regarding the Cancer Recovery Plan. Um, I think that's welcome that that is, that that is uh, to be noted. I, I had flagged up earlier in the meeting that I think we need to see some further clarity now in relation to the finances underpinning a lot of these announcements and to explore with the Minister, and I'm conscious he's in with us next week, to explore with the Minister what uh, negotiations he has had with the Executive or what indications are in relation to Treasury or anyone else because if we don't resource these plans with uh, finance and with workforce, they won't get off the ground or they won't deliver what, what we're asking to. Any other uh, comments or, or issues on that? Um, the other one that I wanted to flag up, I'm just going to ask. Yeah, go ahead, Paula. Yeah. Um, I do agree with you about the whole financial aspect of this, because obviously the elective care plan had um, a certain amount of money beside it, and the mental health strategy had a certain amount. I'm just wondering, is there any way we could have sort of a collation of all these new strategies that are coming forward and these announcements of what the health minister is going to need to actually have to see them on one piece of paper? Because they're fairly, fairly rack up very, very quickly. So it's just really to get a sense of what the cumulative um, impact would be from all these strategies that have been announced recently. Thank you. Thank you. Members content that we seek that? Thank you. The last one then in terms of the main correspondence is that I want to flag up is 11.5, which is a reply from the Minister on the autism referrals. And I want to welcome the fact that, that there, uh, the Minister has indicated that they will look at capturing the uh, numbers of private diagnoses that are being carried out and that are being accepted by each trust. Because I think if we've said in committee here before, what gets measured gets done. So it's crucial that we, we, we get the measurements of what's happening out there in real time. That's obviously a key issue for so many members of our community. So I think that's a welcome step forward and I look forward to that being delivered and developed. So members, in relation to the main pack, uh, do members have any other items in relation to the main pack? And if not then, in relation to the main pack, are members content that the actions are proposed? Are members otherwise content with the actions proposed on the main correspondence memo? Sure. Members are content. Sorry, yeah, or Leah, yeah, very yeah, brief, briefly, Leah. Quickly, yeah, so um, 11.16, um, it's another <clears throat> letter that we've received from Mesh Ireland um, around their campaign, and there's been some progress over in Scotland around reimbursing the cost of women who need to get um, full mesh removals. So I'll not take up time today, but we'll just like, I know that next week is marking the one year anniversary from the Julia Cumberbatch report. And hopefully, maybe members might be able to spend a wee bit more time and know of the minister and stuff as well. So, but we can come back to it next week. But I just think that we need to. I know we're talking about legislation and how busy our Fort Work programme is, but we also need to schedule in those sessions with some of the campaign groups that we've agreed to meet. And I know that the mesh campaigners um, are certainly fall within that bracket. So it's an issue that we can't. Um, I just don't think we can afford to drop the ball on it. We need to give people the time and space to speak to the committee. Okay. Okay. Thank you, members. Content with that? 
and their members otherwise contented with the with the uh, correspondence memo. And then, can I ask members that, that the members that we will consider the table papers and the forward work program via email and agree those via email to conclude today's business? Okay, members. A reminder: just that the the joint committee meeting is commencing at one o'clock with uh, justice in relation to the, the the joint campus. So, thank you, members. And our next meeting, just to flag this up, is our next meeting will be. Thursday, 8th of July at 9 at 9 a.m. It's an earlier start, members, next week. It's starting at 9 a.m. via video link. Thank you, members. Okay. Thank you. Stay safe. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30.